Well, with the life that God has given you, the energy, time, resources that you still have at your disposal, let me ask, whose program are you going to implement in your life? Presumably your program, but have you made it up or have you inherited it? Have you taken it from your culture, from your family, from the Lord Jesus? Whose program do you live by? They were gathered in the upper room where he had told them just a few days previously that he was going to die and rise again, but they hadn't believed it then. But now the tomb was empty and some had seen it. And Simon had seen the risen Lord, as had two disciples, on the road to Emmaus. And then Jesus stood there in front of them, showing his hands and his feet, and eating fish to show that he wasn't a ghost but was risen flesh and blood. And then he gave the program over to them. Turn with me to Luke's Gospel, chapter 24, Luke 24, page 1066. That's a good kind of number, isn't it? 1066, Luke chapter 24. Well, 1067 really, verse 44. Luke 24, verse 44. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. See, this was God's program revealed in the Old Testament, in the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms. That's the Old Testament, revealed in the Old Testament, and now implemented by Jesus. And this program had about it a historical necessity, which is why I emphasise that little word, which in its way is emphasised in Greek. It's an unnecessary word unless you're making the point. Must happen. These things didn't just happen. They had to happen because God had planned them, God had predicted them, and God the Son put them into operation. They had to happen. And just as the death and resurrection of the Christ had to happen, so did the preaching of repentance and forgiveness of sins to all nations had to happen. Only the Lord Jesus was leaving. He was not going to be doing it. They were to do it. The Spirit-empowered witnesses of the death and resurrection of Jesus. For this was Jesus' agenda. His agenda while he was living in Palestine and his agenda now that he'd risen to sit at the right hand of God in all power and authority. The agenda of the risen Christ, notice, was not to bring down the government. It was not to go and set up a a perfect commune somewhere. It was not to bring about a social revolution. It was not to 
go and lobby governments to bring laws to ameliorate poverty. It was not to go battle drugs and alcohol and gambling and pornography. The agenda of the risen Christ was to preach repentance and forgiveness, that his death and resurrection would be applied to all manner of people of all nations of the world. Now, as we come to a topic like Christian social concern, I'm afraid that we come to something of an idol. Preachers know when we touch idols because of the reaction we get when the idol is exposed and removed. It's not just that people notice that we do it and complain, that's to be expected, it's the way they complain. It's the irrational argumentativeness that is used. It's the level of emotional overreaction that is used. It's the inability to actually hear the preacher's point of view or the, the caricaturing of the preacher's point of view, making it much more absolute and extreme than he ever meant it to be. When a pastor questions modern healing ministries, he gets the reaction, that's because you don't believe in miracles, do you? Well, no, it's just the modern healing ministries have some questionable characteristics to them. Or when the pastor questions the place of music. Oh, that's just because you don't like music. You can't sing, you're tone deaf. That's your problem, isn't it? You've got no soul, no... No, but what place music does have or doesn't have in church needs to be evaluated, needs to be questioned, needs to be analysed. What, what are we doing and why are we doing and how much of it should we do and when should we do? And They're good questions to ask but it's an idol for many people for whom church is music and music is church because music is worship and worship is music and you go to church to worship, don't you? And so therefore music is what it's about. Or when a pastor questions the place of emotions. Well, that's just because you're a cerebral kind of person. Obviously, you have been ter terribly non-rational. Uh, you are terribly rational. You actually have no emotions. You're not connected with your own emotions. You're a graduate of Moore College. <laughs> so what happens when pastors question the place and priority of social welfare? Well, that's because you only believe in preaching the gospel. Uh, that's because you have no heart for the poor and oppressed. You've never actually been poor yourself. It's because you're an old white male establishment figure. When I'm accused of that, I think to myself, well, not much I can do about being old, and there's not much I can do about being white, and I don't intend to change being a male, and I'm trying to lose my figure, if that helps... It only leaves the establishment here and that's why we're here today. So with this warning of setting politically incorrect and misquoted issues, let's look at the agenda of social concern. I've warned you I'm about to be politically incorrect and I've warned me that you're not going to like it. Well, you will, you're my friends, but others listen on tape. And those who are listening on tape, you should have been at the conference. I know, I know you lived interstate, but others have travelled, why didn't you? <laughs> Firstly then, we look at treating symptoms, curing disease and creating health. For it's commonplace to say we don't want to put band-aids on cancer. 
So what are the symptoms of society's problems that we would address as just that, symptoms, nothing more? And what are the diseases that we're actually seeking to cure? And what is our program for preventative medicine, of creating healthy societies that don't get these symptoms, that don't need cures at all? Now please remember the value, my friends, of Band-Aids. Now certainly they don't cure cancer, but they do address some symptoms and it's often important to address symptoms. Feeding one hungry man is not going to solve the problem of the world's hunger, nor even that particular man's long-term hungry needs. Next week he'll be hungry again, if not tomorrow. But giving him food is still a good thing to do. It's a great answer to his prayer. It'll keep him alive a little longer. It may give him the opportunity to sort out his problems and a way of addressing them. There's nothing wrong with putting the Band-Aid on. In fact, there's everything right about putting the Band-Aid on. So don't despise Band-Aids that we're able to put on people just because they don't solve everything. After all, they're not meant to solve everything. They're just meant to cover up the open wound. That's all they're meant to do. That's what they do. They're very good for that. But the other things, the knife that's in the back, well, that still needs to be sorted out. So, furthermore, we need to take into account that some much more dramatic medical interventions, sophisticated medications, actually don't turn out to be much more than super band-aids. They look like they're aimed at the cause of the problem, but they're just a little deeper than skin deep and they don't address the real problem. Often a man will go to a doctor and with a particular problem and have that problem addressed and leave the doctor's surgery, still a smoker, still a drunkard, and will be returning in a few months' time. He's had more than a Band-Aid, but his problem still hasn't been addressed. The smoking and the drinking still going to kill him. It's here that I want to introduce the concept of the evangelical diagnosis and prognosis. For we evangelicals have a distinctive diag di diag diagnosis and prognosis, which affects the priority we give to problems and how we address them. And it actually sometimes means we see problems the world doesn't see and we don't see problems the world does see. We look at the world differently. Take the obvious one, sin. That's one of our chief diagnoses. Yet, it's not even in the vocabulary of most helping agencies. You work as a psychiatrist, as a social worker, as a counsellor, you work in a, an aid relief agency, you work for the United Nations, for the Red Cross, and just say, look, I think the problem is sin. You don't get very far. It was like when I was a boy at uh, high school, I'd been converted just a few months and they sent me a history exam and it's most likely I hadn't studied for it anyway, I never studied anything other than how to bowl off breaks in those days, with occasional leg breaks, but I really wasn't interested in history or anything else. But I remember answering every one of the questions with the same answer really. They said, you know, what is the cause of the Rum Rebellion of 1810? And I said, Adam and Eve and sin. And uh, I explained it all from sin. And of course, I got into terrible trouble with the teacher 
it was a church school. You're not allowed to give Christian answers in a church school. And so I got into terrible trouble with him because he thought I was trying to take the mickey out of him, which I wasn't. I was just trying to say, well, actually, if the Bible is true, then sin is the cause of the problems like war and rebellion. And, and that's true. Uh, he said, no, we were playing a different game and I shouldn't run onto football fields with cricket bats. It was just, and so keep divinity for divinity and history for history because never the two shall twain because history is about truth and divinity is something you've got to pass sometime. It really had nothing to do with reality, but actually I was right. Sin was the cause of the rum rebellion. And that's part of our diagnosis which the world will not even accept into the problem. Or again, take another obvious one. God. There's a, there's a factor in our diagnosis. The world sees nature and nurture determining us with the possibility of some human free will thrown in as well. But we want to add to things like nature and nurture God working his sovereign purposes out by responding to and by using sinful human, uh, human agents in what's happening. We want to include something far bigger than just the situation that the world sees. And so Christians will look at the world differently to the way the non-Christian looks at the world. And our diagnostic ideas of the problems and the progno prognosis of its outcome will be different because we're founded on a truth that the world does not listen to but in actual fact is more accurate. So take the prognosis. We can say there will be no significant change until this person is regenerated. And then there will be a marked improvement, though perfection will not be reached until the Lord Jesus Christ returns. Now what helping agency in the world today even contemplates the possibility of regeneration. It's just not part of their world. Their answer all the time to every social problem is, we need better education. You've got to put it into the curriculum of primary school. The poor teachers of primary school have got a curriculum that is jam-packed with all the problems of the world, so much so that our children can neither read nor write nor count anything because they know so much about solving the problems of Arabian Springs and revolutions and all kinds of other things and drugs and, and alcohol and you name it, they solve it in infant school. They just don't know how to learn anymore. But it's the problem that the teacher has to be loaded up with a curriculum that is nonsense. The Fabians many years ago said, in the 19th, late 19th century, the Fabians, very uh, left-wing socialists, they said that if we educate people, house people, clothe people, feed people, we'll solve the problems of the world. A hundred years later, I spoke to one of the Fabian leaders and he told me that they now had better housed, better clothed, better fed, uh, better educated criminals. We have more people in prison than ever. The only time they got rid of prisoners in England was when they sent them out here. Otherwise, they've been able to maintain their rate of criminality with all the advances of education that is available. They've just now got clever criminals. What's our diagnosis of society's problems and our prognosis of its future? 
Well, firstly, though humanity as a whole is uniquely created in God's image with the mandate and ability to fill and subdue the world, we, secondly, in our sinful rebellion against God, have distorted the ways God wants us to rule his world. So, thirdly, in God's judgment, our failure has been reinforced. It was reinforced in Genesis 3 by the hostility engendered between men and women, by the painful problem of women in childbearing, and by the hostility between men and their working environment. It was further reinforced in Genesis 11 by the cultural confusion created by different languages, the confusion of languages which meant we now think differently to each other and cannot communicate properly. It was further reinforced, according to Romans 1, by being given up by God to do the very things that our sinful hearts and natures wanted to do. And this led people to accepting folly as wisdom and wisdom as folly and immorality as acceptable. The end result of this is described in Ephesians chapter 4 for us. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They've become callous and given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. It sounds like the modern television shows, doesn't it? But notice, my very clever friends of the 21st century, how Paul understood post-modernity back there in the first century. Because he doesn't see us as rational people making decisions of rationality. He sees us as sinful people rationalising with our minds in order to cover our sinfulness. Postmodernity is well understood in the scriptures. People use their minds to cover up, to rationalise, to excuse their own sinfulness. That's not to say we don't have minds, but we use them in such corrupt fashion. And once we get onto this spiral downwards, it just gets worse and worse and worse. So fourthly, we do need to say, though, that even in this context, we don't lose all sense of justice or righteousness. For as Romans teaches, they knew the wrongness of the actions they approved of. They approved of them, but they knew they were wrong. It's like the newspapers. I always like those newspaper exposés. Or you get it in the kind of after-the-news shows. You know those news broadcasts, 7.30s or whatever they are, where they all say, scandalous, wretched, tut, 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 but let me show you more, let me show you more. You know, the pictures, you know, terrible scandals, sexual evils, pictures available for you to be participating in it all the time. They... They know it's wrong, but they rejoice in that which is wrong. And yet their consciences still keep condemning people. Guilt and guilt feelings have filled in the minds of modern people. Though they deny the reality of guilt, they don't seem to be able to get away from their feelings of guilt. And so it's possible to still appeal to what is fair in our society to what is just, to what is right. And sinful humans will still respond with some agreement that, yeah, that's not fair, that's not right, 
Furthermore, fifthly, God revealed and taught his ways to the family of Abraham. Very interesting little reference in Genesis 18 when Sodom and Gomorrah are about to be destroyed and the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do, seeing that Abraham shall become, surely become a great and mighty nation and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him? For I've chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. So while in this world humanity has turned its back on God and not listening to God, yet God has chosen a man and told him of righteousness because this man's going to be the father of many nations. Remember, Abraham is not just the father of Israel. He's also the father of Edom and the uncle of Lot and the father of Ishmael, as well as several children by his second wife, Keturah. There are many nations that come out of the Abrahamic world and they were taught the ways of God. So the ways of God were not kept away from humanity. They were filtered into humanity. Uh, You you can see it on things like uh, Joseph. Uh, Joseph was down in Egypt. His master, Potiphar, had a wife. She tried to seduce him. Joseph ran out of the house and wouldn't be seduced because he said it was wrong to commit adultery. That's very interesting because up until that point in the Bible, there is no commandment against committing adultery. The law of Moses hasn't been given yet. The Ten Commandments haven't come yet. But he knew it was wrong to commit adultery with his boss's, his master's wife. And you get the same kind of issues with, with Abraham when he tries to pass off his wife, Sarah, as his sister. And Pharaoh objects about such a thing. There is a right, there is a wrong that is known and there is a right and wrong that's actually been revealed through the children of Abraham. And sixthly, God appointed governments to restrain evil and bring justice. That is, God didn't act in judgment either by ending the world the day Adam sinned, nor by giving it up wholly and saying, okay, well, that's what you want to do. It's over to you. I'm off to create another universe. God was patient and long-suffering and put limits to our sinfulness. So though he gave us up, yet not totally has he given us up. He's given us governments to bring justice and to restrain wickedness, for God is slow to anger. And finally on my list today, seventhly I'm up to, in all this, God was preparing the way for the coming of his son, for the salvation of the world and for the creation of a new heavens and a new earth. For Jesus is no afterthought, a kind of contingency plan for the world that got off the rails. It's not as if on the eighth day God turned up and said, oh gee, Adam, you've goofed there. Now what am I going to do? I wonder how I can manage this problem. I'll have a chat to my son and see if he's got an idea about it or not. It's not a contingency plan for when things went wrong. For before the creation of the world, God had planned for his son to save the world. Uh, Listen to 1 Peter chapter 1. You were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers with the precious blood of Christ. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, 
was made manifest in these last times for your sake. It was always the plan of God that the Lord Jesus Christ would come into the world to pay the penalty for our sin and rise to create a new heavens and a new earth where people wouldn't just be creatures of the Creator but children of the Father. Now all this makes Christians ambivalent about society. For on the one hand, society is comprised of incredibly gifted people whose problem-solving abilities is marvellous and organised into God-given governments, institutions, families to bring about justice in the world. But on the other hand, it's comprised of sinful and frustrated people who will use and abuse their abilities to pervert life. Be it the lazy fool of Proverbs who brings destruction upon himself and his family or the wicked fool of Psalm 14 who corrupts the world by his abominable deeds or the naive fool of Proverbs who follows the adulteress into her trap of death. So what do Christians do? Well, we do three things. We apply band-aids to open sores. We accept and assist governments in bringing order. But we also have no hope of ultimately improving things for only dealing here with symptoms. Let me take those in turns. Band-aids. We will visit the widow and the orphan in their distress. We will feed the hungry and clothe the naked. We will house the homeless and care for the stranger and the alien and the refugee. But all this is so much band-aid work. All we're doing is treating symptoms, not diseases. But it's necessary, it's good, it's helpful, but ultimately neither addressing the seriousness nor the source of the problem. Secondly, we will assist and accept governments, for they're appointed by God to bring justice. And so we're to assist them in prayer, 1 Timothy 2, as well as to obediently honour them. For the kingdom of Christ is not of this world and we're not required to take over government or the functions of government to bring about justice. Rather, we're to give to Caesar what is to Caesar's and to give to God what is God's. Thus, Jesus distinguished the work of God from the work of Caesar. You and I are familiar with this. What we may not be familiar with is the fact that it's almost the first time in human history that such a distinction had ever been made. That there were the things of God and the things of Caesar. It was a radical, radical, astonishing idea to the ancient world which of course we today just take for granted. It was Jesus who separated state and church in the way in which he did. And so we pay our taxes and we pray for the government and we help them in any way we can to rule with equity and justice while never really putting our trust in princes because you know what princes do? They die. You know what happens next? Another one comes who doesn't know what the last one knew and so we've got to train another one. It never ends, you see. Don't put your hope in princes. This is one of the things that I always find a little puzzling about Americans because they know their president's only going to last for four years, eight at the absolute maximum, but they always treat him as if he's the Messiah come to bring in a thousand-year reign. 
you know, it just doesn't happen. It's just a pendulum swing from one side to the other side as they go and do exactly the same as the other one would do from the outside, it would appear anyway. But in all this, thirdly, we don't hope to solve the problems. The sick are like the poor. We will always have them with us. We will not do away with sickness in our lifetime or in this world till the Lord returns. We don't have the answers on how to solve these issues. God has not told us and our non-Christian neighbours may in their intelligence create all kinds of first-class band-aids but in the end they'll only be band-aids. There is no elixir to life that some chemist is going to invent that is going to keep you alive forever and ever or looking younger forever and ever unless you have one of those kinds of Botox faces pulled back into a weird contortion. And if you think that's looking young, well, never mind. But some of them do invent very clever things. Professor Sabin developed oral polio vaccine. So much so that you and I just aren't worried about polio. We don't even think about polio. It's of no consequence. My brother spent six months, not my brother the Archbishop, my other brother, spent six months in bed because of polio and nearly died because of polio. And you go into the third world today and there is still polio. Because although we've invented the oral vaccine that can cleanse one community, one nation from it completely, we haven't invented a just system of world distribution of medicines so that poor people in other parts of the world can have what you and I had for nothing, free. Well, our taxes paid for it. And we can rejoice and applaud this invention, this intervention rather, into human suffering. And we can work with the governments to spread its use. And we can do that as Christians because as Christians we're still part of humanity, ruling the world, part of humanity that comes up with what really are wonderful inventions. I mean, that is a fantastic invention. That's just one of thousands of wonderful inventions. And yet, you know, the death rate hasn't changed. It's still 100%. Hasn't altered. Huh? We've got older, but now we've got a real problem, haven't we? We've got all these old people to look after and finance and have to work longer so as to be able to... Hang on, one of them. Just That's a good idea. I like this. Just got to change my tune here for a moment, haven't I, in self-centeredness. You are going to be looking after me for the years to come, aren't you? Except for a couple of you who I can see are pretending to be younger than, older than, younger than me when you're manifestly not. So, but we haven't solved the problem. We've just changed problems, haven't we? We've just now made gerontology the really good specialty to get into in the future. That's caring for the aged, in case you didn't know. Okay, what I've given you so far then is something of the evangelical diagnosis and prognosis, but before I go on to the evangelical prevention and medication, now's the time for a break for a quick questions and answers if you would like to ask or comments that you might like to say. So are there any questions, comments so far that I've said that you would like to ask or comment? I ask you first, have you got the chance close by here? because I turn my back on you in a moment. Are there any other comments, questions people want to ask? Yes?
Okay, there's a campaign started in the UK called Make, Christ Make Poverty History. Should Christians get involved in it? Well, nothing good comes out of the UK except for us. Uh, yes, we. Uh, there's nothing wrong with trying to make poverty history other than there's no chance of it succeeding. We will never make poverty history. That we'll always have the poor with us. But just because we always have the poor with us doesn't mean that we should do nothing about poverty. We'll always have sin with us. Well, therefore, I shouldn't do anything against sin. I should just enjoy sin because I can't help it. We always do it, don't we? No. Because we have sin, even though we will not overcome it finally, we should fight against it because it's bad. Because we have poverty, even though we won't overcome it finally, we should fight against it because it's bad. And I guess making poverty history is a kind of catchy phrase that can stir a generation to do it, but it's an arrogant nonsense because we never will do it. And we've got to you know, blow the whistle a little bit or a raspberry and say, great idea but stupid ultimately. <laughs> it's just not true. It's not going to happen. So don't get your hopes up too much. While at the same time, do something about poverty. Yeah. What to do about poverty? Well, that's another trick, isn't it? How do we solve poverty? Well, you heard corruption can be a bigger problem than actually, but I'll give you another one in a few moments. Yep. Um, just thinking about government, do you think it's true that over history the Christian impact on government has been to minimise it, distribute power into checks and balances and to put political decision-making at an increasingly local level over the centuries? Do you think that's true? And if it's true, do you think there's an ongoing so much put their hope in government but recognise that our hope isn't in government and to kind of have a negative role in, in pointing out the failure of government in order to promote grassroots. Good. It, it, there's a, a, a lovely question coming here on the subject of government and the way to stop it being anything. Uh, so the essence of democracy is to stop government doing anything. Right? distribute the power as far as you can from anyone. The ultimate epitome of democratic government is our gracious sovereign lady, Queen Elizabeth, who only has the power to wave gently. <laughs> There's no other power she has, you see, which is how we really want monarchs, totally powerless. Um, and has Christianity played a part in this kind of spreading of power, this distribution of power and this limiting of power? Yes, it certainly has. Um, fundamental to it, and I'd, I've, got a, a, I've got an idea which I can't prove, I could disprove, but I can't prove because you need to know a negative to prove it's true. That is, as best I know, the first constitutional monarchy was Deuteronomy 17 and the appointment of King Saul. Now, I don't know that unless I know everything about every monarch of the ancient world and we don't know everything about every monarch in the ancient world so there might have been another one somewhere else. But I know of no other one before Moses taught in Deuteronomy 17 that the king had to live under the authority of the law rather than over the authority of the law. And that was a unique, as best I can see, but that was a radical departure because up until then monarchs were all absolute. They were the law. Whatever they said went. Now, you can still see that in atheists like Napoleon, you see, who's, he was the law. Uh, and most rulers see themselves above the law, whereas the biblical ruler sees himself under the law because he's under God. 
and that is conveyed all the way through into Christian constitutions. So our gracious sovereign lady is, by the grace of God, Queen of Australia. It's not by her own authority, it's not even by her inheritance, and it's not by the fact that we voted her in some 10 years ago, it's by the grace of God. And she has to, she's committed to God and to serve God by keeping the law. Now you see it in the Lord Jesus Christ himself. For when he came, he came born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law. When you compare Jesus to other world religious leaders like Joseph Smith or like Muhammad, they constantly have God making special exceptions for them. The Lord didn't apply to Muhammad. He could do things that no other person could do because he was special, but not the Lord Jesus Christ. He was a true king of biblical proportion and lived under the law. Indeed, in a sense, God himself, the absolute monarch, is a constitutional monarch because unlike the other gods of the ancient world, God gave his word and then kept his word. He was bound by his own word, which again was an extraordinary thing, marking him out as quite different to the other gods because the other gods would give their words and then they'd go back on their word. If it suited them, they'd just, they'd just change what was happening, but not our God. And so, yes, built into the Judaic Christian history is a sense of the rule of law and the diminution of the power of the law, the, the person under the law. And so the emperor, even though he didn't know God, was yet appointed by God. And we obey him because God has appointed him. And this, this concept of the authority of God over rulers and then the distribution flows out of Christianity. And so have we got a role to keep doing it? Yes, I'm sure we should as much as we have the opportunity, but if a dictator takes over Australia tomorrow, we've got to honour the dictator. Um, in one of the last talks, you learned that corpus and corpus to depend on God, but it depends on what God you follow, isn't it? Like in some countries, yes, it might help them to depend on God, but is the God that they know something like God? Yes. Poverty, we're told from a previous talk, is, uh, helps us to learn to depend upon God, but it depends upon which God we're depending upon. And so if you actually are depending upon a God who's not a God, it's not going to help you at all. Yes, I'm sure that Con meant the God of the Bible that we're to depend upon, who can give us all good gifts, rather than the God who believes it's good for us to stay poor forever. Or the God who is not there. <laughs> Depending upon the God who is not there is a fool's paradise, isn't it? Yep. Okay, let's press on with where we're going because we're going to get through these things and I know it's been a long, hard day for you. Much harder to sit than it is and listen than it is to stand and talk. I'm at the point four in my outline that a distinctively evangelical social agenda goes beyond simple band-aids and even beyond the, the kind of sophisticated surgery or medicines like the oral polio vaccine. It goes into the evangelical prevention and medication. Not that we believe we can solve the problems this side of the Lord's return, but we do believe that we can prevent some problems happening and we do believe that we can bring real changes by rightly applying evangelical medication. 
The revelation of God warns us of the consequences of sin upon a person and upon a society and brings us to the way of dealing with sin by the gospel, which brings not only forgiveness from the past, but regeneration and change in the present, which grows into life in the future and even into eternity. For the Spirit of God uses the preaching of the gospel to bring about, to bring about profound, life-changing, uh, life-saving changes to people. As by rebirth, their lives are reoriented away from rebellion against God into serving the true and living God. Now this reorientation, this massive change in direction of living is, though profoundly personal, doesn't lead us into individualism as I argued this morning with you, if you can remember that far back. They're profoundly personal, but because it's relational, it actually leads us into social concern. We stop being self-centred and become profoundly other person-centred. Because we love God with all we have, we are directed to love our neighbour as ourselves. This gospel reorientation is often overlooked. It's overlooked, of course, by the non-Christian because they've never had it and they've never seen it. Though sometimes they talk of it. There's a lovely old American phrase which talks about, oh, he's got religion. It's a very old-fashioned American phrase, but it's real. For they found people who were drunk and who were, who were thieves and who were layabouts, and then suddenly their life cleaned up, and when asked, they'd say, oh, yeah, well, he's got religion. And it actually affected their lives so that it could be seen. But generally the non-Christian doesn't see it. They never expect it. But it's also overlooked by those who assume the society as a whole is Christian or those who have grown up with it in their families. That is, second-generational Christians often don't value, don't see the transformation of change because, well, this is the way our families always be. They didn't know what Dad was like before he became a Christian. They didn't know what Mum was like before she became a Christian. They just know Mum and Dad as they are, Christian. And so they assume that, well, that's our family rather than the reality of the gospel transforming and it's assumed by those also who are so heavily committed in putting on band-aids on the immediate problems in front of them that they do not realise and, and weigh up properly the much more important profound task of standing back from putting on band-aids and bringing transformation to society such that as many band-aids are not needed. But without this gospel reorientation, the nature of social welfare is changed and the sacrificial volunteers dries up and the work never gets beyond band-aiding. Let me try and illustrate for you. There was a missionary friend who went to Africa to teach in an agricultural school and thus assist the locals to feed their communities. Now that sounds like superior band-aid work, doesn't it? That is, he didn't go to hand out food, that would be putting on band-aids, he went to teach people how to grow their own food. That's much more superior, isn't it? However, when he went there, he found out that the people actually knew how to farm, they knew how to farm their part of Africa, and in fact they knew a lot more about farming their part of Africa than he did. So why were the people starving? 
The answer was because they didn't know how to live at peace with their neighbours. They kept stealing each other's crops, burning each other's crops, stealing each other's cattle. They were always at war with each other. No village got on with any other village and so no village could spend time doing the agriculture that they knew how to do. So he turned the agricultural college into a Bible college to teach people the gospel so that they would then be able to use their technology for good instead of for evil. I deal from time to time with my friends in the alcoholic world and they have a saying about a dry drunk, that a dry drunk is not an alcoholic in recovery. It's better that he's dry than that he's drunk. But it's only time before he'll drink again. He needs to be changed from the inside. Not just conformed by external pressures from outside to keep away from the alcohol. The only way ultimately for him to stay free is to be changed. And that inside work is the transforming power of the spirit of the risen Lord Jesus which comes with preaching the gospel. Or again, think of the preventative social consequences of raising a generation of people who are opposed to adultery, who are opposed to multiple marriages, who are opposed to gambling and who wish to avoid drug abuse, who have got a positive work ethic and are opposed to stealing or to luxurious living but have a deep commitment to generosity. What a society would come from such a generation and where does where could you find such people why in the gospel of the lord jesus christ nothing i've said just a few moments ago was in any way contrary to what christians are always teaching and what christians are modeling and what christians are actually raising our society we are society building people our preventative social welfare program is the one that makes society work However, in every generation there seems to develop an evangelical confusion about the relative priority and relationship between evangelism and social welfare. It's coming again, as you heard from Adrian today and as we work through a particular issue from Cam earlier on, here we come to the crux of the problem of the conflict between evangelism and social welfare, a conflict that needs never be there, but in the confusion keeps on coming back to us. It's similar to the conflict and confusion between church and evangelism or church and worship. They're good things, both good things, but how are they related? When people relate them the wrong way, we lose both, or worse, we actually change the nature of the Christian gospel. See, church is the result of evangelism. And a church should stimulate more evangelism. But church itself is not evangelism, for church is the gathering of the saved to hear the word of God. It's the gathering of those who have been saved by evangelism. And hearing the word of God will lead them to go out and evangelise. But church itself is Christian, not evangel. And because we worship everywhere, we worship in church. You don't stop worshipping in church. We worship everywhere except for church. But we don't go to church to worship God. 
And we don't define worship by what we do in church. But we don't limit worship to church going. Such confusion undermines Christian worship and it distorts church going and the edificatory purposes of church. So every Sunday when you get welcomed in church with the words of, well, we welcome you today to our time of worship, what were you doing before that? Why weren't you worshipping then? And you see how just the language has taught us to think that what we do in church is worship and what we do out there is something else. Well, that's not true. If you worship God, you worship him every breath of your life. Now, evangelism and social welfare are two good things. How do they relate gets people into terrible confusion. Here are a few alternatives for you that I draw to your attention. Firstly, evangelism and social welfare are not alternatives to each other. As if we can preach the gospel but not care for the injustice of the world. Or as if we can care for the injustice of the world while keeping people ignorant of the gospel that will transform the world's situation. I mean, to put it in caricature terms, we don't aim to save starving people, nor do we aim to lose well-fed people. I mean, it's, it's a nonsense, isn't it? Gospel preaching and social welfare are not alternatives to each other, so don't let people put them in conflict. Secondly, evangelism and social welfare are not interchangeable. One is addressing the symptoms of our sin, the other is addressing the disease of sin. So one will always have to be repeated, repeatedly performed for it never solves the problem, it only eases the pain or some of it. The other addresses the problem itself and can bring real change to the person by changing the person and changing society around them. Evangelism by itself is social welfare though social welfare by itself is not evangelism. See, as we preach the gospel, we are benefiting society. Repentant fathers stop bashing their wives, gamblers give up the destruction of their families, adulterers return to their spouses and rebuild their home, thieves pay back the money they stole, citizens take interest in needs of others. Preaching the gospel is social welfare. But social welfare can be done with or without preaching the gospel. There's no necessarily follow-on from it at all. Somebody asks for my help in the street, I go and help them in the street, they say thank you very much. No gospel has gone anywhere there. I mean, do I at that moment say, hey, I'm a Christian, that's why I did it for you? I mean, without something, there is no gospel in that event. One of my big problems, I live over in Piedmont, and I keep having people asking for directions and I love to give them directions because I love my Sydney and I've been a tourist and I know how nice it is to be shown where to go. But at 50%, 75% of the time, the direction they ask for is, where's the casino? Very difficult to know what to say at that point to somebody who hates gambling as much as I do. Do I say to them, well, it's down there and you can waste your money down there and be rude to them like that? Oh, I can say, oh, it's over there. Go, go the wrong way. I mean, I'm helping you. I mean, how do you help someone who wants to go to the casino? Stand on their foot, break a foot and tell them where the hospital is. I mean, there's all kinds of options come to my mind, but I, I still don't know. You might like to share with an email to me. Social welfare, caring for people, is not evangelism necessarily or rarely, usually. 
I can preach the gospel as I do my welfare work, but that always has terrible dangers. The danger of rice Christians, people actually listen to me just because they want the food I can give them. And then there's the double-mindedness of helping people, not because I love them, but because I want to have an audience. Now, social welfare for evangelism is bad news. They're not interchangeable. Thirdly, evangelism and social welfare are not equal partners. Now, it will not do to talk here of salt and light in Matthew chapter 5 as being salt social action, light evangelistic. You're the the salt, the, the purifier of the society that works its way through society, preserving society. And you are the light the light of the world, the knowledge of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a wonderful sermon. It's just not true, that's all. That's the problem with it. It's not what Jesus was talking about. It misses the third image. You are the city on the hill, for example. It fails to come to terms with a passage in its context. Now, I've written about this in the book on preaching I've produced called The Archer and the Arrow, and there's a little chapter on preparing a sermon on this passage. And I've preached on it several times. The most recent time was at Cathedral Bible Study here on a Tuesday lunchtime a few weeks ago. And you can find out where that is and there download that. In fact, download any of the talks there, won't do you any harm. Now, whenever evangelism and social welfare are put on equal footing, the dynamic of our social welfare is undermined. The eschatological nature of the gospel is undermined. The work of welfare will always be applauded by the world and evangelism will always be an embarrassment to the world and therefore to us. The conditions for the truth of the slippery slope argument are present and the history of evangelicalism demonstrated. Friends, you do need to pay attention to the lessons of history. Whenever the emphasis was put on social work, evangelism is lost. And whenever evangelism is lost, then people being transformed are lost. And when there are no people being transformed, there's nobody around to do the social work anymore. I don't particularly wish to be rude to others, but... Track down the history of the Methodist movement in Australia and you'll see it. It screams. For the Methodists were such fierce evangelists and they showed up the Anglican church in its failure to preach the gospel. That's what they were there. And as they preached the gospel, all manner of social work and social welfare took over. And as that took over, more and more emphasis fell upon it until... Social welfare was what it's all about. And as they move into becoming the uniting church, fewer and fewer people, older and older, maintaining a bigger and bigger social welfare program that they can't maintain, and it is dying. And that story can be repeated over and over again. YMCA, YWCA, thoroughly Christian, out-and-out evangelistic programs set up all around the world. There's only two or three of them left in the world that are even vaguely Christian. In fact, some have even moved to remove the C out of YMCA and YWCA. For it's now a gymnasium. It's now, it's all kinds of things, but it's no longer what it was set up for. 
It was set up to preach the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ that men might be brought out of hell and placed in heaven. That young men, young women would be saved. That was its purpose. But the social welfare part of it overwhelmed it. Over the way here we've now got the Red Cross set up by Calvinists in Geneva. You ever wondered why it's the Geneva Conventions? The Geneva Conventions came out of Calvinism. It came out of the whole Christian ethos of the city of Geneva. Hundreds of years, even after Calvin, it was still there. And the Red Cross was set up by an evangelist seeing the Crimean War and the horrors of the Crimean War. And come, but he was an evangelist who saw it and who brought about the changes to government's attitudes towards the suffering of people. Today, the Red Cross, you're not allowed to mention that the cross is about Jesus. You're not allowed to mention that there's Christian foundations in it. You're not allowed to stand as a Christian within the system of Red Cross. I can understand why they do that, especially in a Muslim country where they don't call it the Red Cross, they call it the Red Crescent. You can understand why they do it, because they want to help people. But do you see how evangelism has been lost out of it totally? The history happens over and over again, and the reverse happens over again. When people start preaching the gospel, when they start seeing people converted, inevitably, as a consequence of it, all manner of social welfare starts to be developed. It always happens. Because you can't see people converted, changed and transformed by the Holy Spirit, who can look at the problems of their life around about them and say, ah, doesn't matter, I'm going to heaven. Never goes that way. Once you're transformed by the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, you see the problems around about you and you roll up your sleeves and say, let's get in and fix this. The more we see people converted, the more we see social transformation. So what is the thing that initiates the chicken and egg? Which is the chicken and which is the egg? There's no doubt about it. It comes out of gospel preaching that you get social welfare. Not out of social welfare do you ever get the gospel preaching. So evangelism is our concern for the good and well-being of others. Changing their lives to address their real issues turning them outwards to look after the needs of others. The preaching of the glory of the crucified Christ will not only bring eternal life to individuals but also welfare to their lives now as a consequence. And it's our motivation, our agenda in helping people now and into eternity. I'm reading a very interesting book at the moment. It's not what you expect me to read. It's written by a woman, a professor called Regina Kunzel, and it's called Fallen Women and Problem Girls. Just the kind of book every minister should be reading on the train. <laughs> Unmarried Mothers and the Professionalisation of Social Work, 1890 to 1945. It's a book on unmarried mothers. Like I say, a surprise to most. In it... She, she's a historian, she's a feminist. I haven't yet found a page in which has indicated the slightest understanding of Christianity. She's a feminist historian writing about two movements that took place in the first half of the 20th century, hanging over from the end of the 19th century. One was the evangel evangelicals who were preaching the gospel through Salvation Army and through other independent evangelical organisations, preaching the gospel and saw the terrible problems and plights of young unmarried mothers 
And so set up homes to look after them and to preach the gospel to them, running Bible studies with them every day, helping them through their confinement and then helping them, training them how to look after their babies and how to set up a life as an unmarried mother in the first part of the 20th century, finding jobs and job skills for them, having halfway houses to look after them so that they could keep their babies and look after them themselves. The other group were the social workers, women who were trying to carve out a profession for themselves, a profession like the medical profession, like the engineers, like the, like the teacher's profession, to gain status and understanding in society, to, to have a career that was meaningful and well-paid and well-remunerated, and who therefore took on board the importance of technical training, scientific understanding of the problems, a professionalism. And that's why the book is about the professionalisation of the social workers. Gradually, over time, the evangelical organisations lost confidence in their evangelism as they were harried and attacked by these professional social workers. The, the, the women who were doing the social work, the, the evangelicals, there's one lovely quote I saw here, this woman, she, she's asked how she does it and she says, it's rather difficult to tell people how to do this work. My only plan is to remember Jesus and his love and then to act naturally. Well, of course, that's ridiculed by the professional social worker. You've got to analyse the problems and the social involvements, the sociology that lies behind it, the, the ethics that's involved, the economics that's involved. And so the professional social workers dispatched off these evangelists who were looking after the women. Of course, professional social workers don't have to love the women they're dealing with. That's not part of the deal. They don't have to live with them. That's not part of the deal. And so what they set up, of course, was the adoption industry of the middle of the 20th century, whereby the problem girls, not the fallen women, the problem girls, who they saw as being feeble-minded or sexual delinquents. They were the two options they gave them. Not women needing redemption, not women needing forgiveness, not women needing regeneration, not women who could be helped back into society. Delinquents, feeble-minded, whom we discuss whether or not we should actually remove from them the ability to have any other children. What did they do? Well, of course, as soon as the baby is born, you must take it away from the mother and adopt it out to other people. Never allow any bonding to take place. And the evangelicals lost confidence in this task of evangelising the fallen and went with the social workers in caring for the delinquents, solving the problem, adopting out. And now, this many years later, there's a whole generation of people still wondering why their mother gave them up and a generation of old women still grieving for the baby. And now we say, what were we thinking of when we did that? And the answer was we were not thinking of the gospel because when we thought of the gospel, we did it the right way. We actually loved them and cared for them and preached Christ to them and brought forgiveness to them and helped them with new jobs, with new training, with new homes, to be able to do that which any mother would long to do. 
repeatedly evangelicals lose confidence in the gospel transformation and then professionalise. We've professionalised social work. We've professionalised teaching. We've professionalised ministers. It's awful. Because a really professional minister won't preach the gospel to you because he knows that preaching the gospel will divide his congregation. He doesn't want that. You diminish the income and the church treasurer will have your job. Can't do that. What people understand is that the evangelical agenda is different to the society's agenda of welfare. The things society wants to do and they want us to do are not the same things that gospel-driven people will do. You see, there are matters of life and death that the chattering classes just wish we would shut up about, like abortion and euthanasia. They're part of the evangelical agenda because we believe in life and its sanctity. Unlike the professor who has been given an award of our government, the man who teaches us that it's all right to abort, it's all right to abort even after birth, it's all right to practice euthanasia, it's all right to have sex with animals. He's the one that our government honours with a great title. And there are matters of family relations and sexuality that the chattering classes are wanting us to change. Shut up about adultery. Adultery is one of the greatest causes of agony in our society today. It's one of the greatest causes of poverty in our society today. The broken family is the destroyed economy of our society today. You want to wreck society? Allow and encourage adultery. But when have you heard someone say that lately? But that's the Christian idea. Prostitution is a dreadful thing. Of course you can stop prostitution if you want to. Just photograph the men going in and coming out. Put their names and their photos in the paper. You'll stop it. And they want us to not talk about homosexuality and they want us to have easy divorce and financial irresponsibility of... See, we have an agenda that is just so different to the, the agenda of the media, the agenda of the world. And we have concerns about materialism. A society funded by gambling is appalling. Do we need a second casino, they're asking? No, we need to get rid of the first one. A daft, stupid question. Do we restrict poker machines? Now, what do you mean you restrict poker machines? Destroy them. That's what we need to do. For they are destroying the lives of our people. And it's the poorest people in the land are the ones who have the greatest access to poker machines because they're all out in the pubs in the poor suburbs because they're the people who pour their pension money in week after week. But you try and speak against gambling in a society that is owned and run by the gambling society. And so to keep our economy growing, I read this last week, all of us have to work till we're 70. And we've got to increase the rate of women in the workforce. All women need to work. Don't, don't be a mother at home. That's a dreadful thing to do. And the New South Wales Retailers Association, they tell us we've got to get rid of public holidays. We've got to keep those shops open seven days a week, 24 hours a day, everybody working. Do we work to live or do we live to work? No, we live and work to make money for the shareholders. And we have international concerns that are not those of the same other people. 
We have international concerns about nations that are held in superstition and falsehood and how little our Australian wealth is used to de developing our neighbours' needs, eradicating simple things like measles or polio. These are not dealing with simple symptoms but dealing with important issues that affect a host of other issues and we believe the way we will really change the world and society though is not by even doing these things but by preaching the gospel. For it's only as people are grasped by the gospel that they will start to see the problems that are really there that need to be addressed. So my brothers and sisters, get with the Jesus program. The Jesus agenda is world evangelism that will help people wherever it goes for it changes us. It brings us forgiveness and pardon. We need it desperately. It brings us new birth and transforms us from rebels against God to lovers of God. And when you become a lover of God, you'll be a lover of people. And if you're a lover of people, you'll do the good works that need to be done. So get with the program. Preach the gospel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for all the good things you give to us, but above all for the Lord Jesus Christ, for his death and resurrection on our behalf, and for those who preach that message to us that we may be forgiven and transformed so lay that burden on our hearts, Father, that we might declare to others the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ and the salvation that he has won for others. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.